0: You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode number 43.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. And I'm Tracy. And today we're going to uh, revisit the past a little bit. Those of you who have been listening since the beginning know we did a uh, comic book influences podcast as podcast number one, uh, back before we changed the name from a Random Thought Generator. But before that, we did a couple of blog posts, one about our movie influences and one about literary influences. And so we thought it'd be nice to kind of go back and, and look at our literary influences and see what's what's changed and what hasn't and what we like, uh, what we think of those now as compared to then, so uh, I think we'll just we'll kind of look at the, look at the, we're, we're both looking at, at at what we wrote before, and um, I think we'll we'll go back and forth here. You want? Yeah, that's fine. To that? Yeah. Okay.
0: I'm looking at my list and realizing that, and I, I I pointed out at the time that this was a partial list, but this is a really partial list. <laughs> right. Was, wow. Um, I I think the first one on your list was Starship Troopers, right?
1: It is, uh, and that's still, you know, I, I've read a couple of really great books since, like I, um, Ready Player One and The and The Martian, and those certainly rank up there with my top favorite books. I still think Starship Troopers is still number one of my favorite books. They um, made
0: a not-so-great movie out of it, though,
1: right? I made a fucking terrible movie out of it. <laughs> I mean, I like it, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, and, and the movie really misses the point. You know, as much as I am not super libertarian, and Starship Troopers exp- uh, espouses very, very libertarian ideas. It's really interesting. Just, just the, the the mix of of politics and 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 military. Um. Not even like actual combat. They really don't talk a lot about combat it's really almost more like military life. Mm-hmm. Uh and and just the society that's built cuz it's not it's not dystopian.
0: Okay, I haven't read it, it so but it's,
1: it's it's very different than than what we what we are used to. Yeah. There's kind of so so kind of society has has you know you look at the kind of the, the um, I mean, what we're living in, in now kind of the decay in the 20th century of of democracy and whatnot. And this is Heinlein kind of saying, kind of taking it further and saying, okay, so you have this decay, you have what what he sees as kind of, as kind of an an, an inevitable unrest and, and civil dis- disorder. And then you have reestablishment of a new order, which is, is somewhat totalitarian,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but at the same time is still very much I don't know about a free society, but it's 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 not a. You know, normally you think totalitarian, you think you know a terrible, oppressive state. It's not a, not strictly an oppressive state. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the big things is that the the only people who have the right to vote, the only ones who are actual citizens, are those that have served in the military.
0: Hmm. Now that's an interesting and,
1: concept, right? And 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 everyone is entitled to serve. Does it matter? Does not matter who or what you are? So and like, so like, you know, we've got you know fairly stringent you know physical requirements and whatnot that people have to meet, right? Yeah. Currently. And and while those exist for certain branches, if anyone wants to. Enlist and serve; they they're required two years. Then, um, then, then they then by law they're 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 legally allowed to do so.
0: Interesting, interesting.
1: Right, so any anybody can can get there. Can earn the vote, can earn citizenship. It's really it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting concept. And like, when they're in the military, they can't vote, but afterwards they can't you know and right
0: just... you've paid your dues basically right yeah and,
1: and cert, certain ideas are really kind of you know I, I don't i don't know that Heinlein actually agrees with these ideas but the idea like they talk about they have like um they have a class in high school that's like it, it's like a morality kind of course mm-hmm. but it's like the morality of their society, so so you kind of get a, a broader sense of their of, of the society, and it's kind of interesting. They talk about like what what they see is the fallacy behind the idea of cruel and unusual punishment being prohibited.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, kind of the idea that, that punishment in and of itself is cruel. Yeah. So that so that's that's a fallacy. in you know, the idea of banning cruel punishment and unusual punishment has the the tendency to make it rememberable. You know, memorable. Yeah,
0: yeah. Interesting.
1: Not, not that it, not that when I say, you know, cruel and unusual punishment, not that it has to be vile, vile punishment. Right. But that it's something that people, that, that's memorable.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, I would have to say that cruel implies that there's something, there's some lack of native emotion behind it. And I would argue that maybe a state cannot be cruel because a state cannot emote um but th-
1: but yeah, that's well, sorry well i was i was said but that's the kind of the the idea i think that highland's trying to get is, is not so much whether or not he agrees with or espouses these ideas but it's that conversation that thought that he wants to evoke and i mm-hmm. think that's really interesting
0: that is so how would you say that that um influenced you like did that influence your thought on politics
1: uh, it certainly it gave me a lot to think about um and again, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with most of it, but it's 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 a very interesting concept. It also it introduced me to a lot more classic science fiction.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. Heinlein
1: is one. Heinlein is one of the the heavyweights of the 19, you know nineteen forties through nineteen sixties of kind of golden age of science fiction. Um, and they, I mean, that got you know, I read that, and then I read some other stuff by Heinlein. Then I read Philip K. Dick. Um, I have moved on to Asimov. Uh, I, you know, I really have not read a whole lot of Ray Bradbury, and I need to.
0: You can start with it. The nice thing about Ray Bradbury is you can start with the short stories, and you could kind of dabble in those for a little bit. Um, that's
1: also that's that's also the other nice thing about um, Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. is he wrote yep. a lot of short stories,
0: yeah. and
1: even even his novel like his novels are all really short.
0: Yeah, that makes um, it a lot got, easier. I've
1: got several of it. Like I mean, like. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is also a really good one that I love.
0: And again, there was a movie made out of it.
1: Yep, that one was yeah, that one was really good. <laughs> he say you Blade Runner. <laughs> Edward James almost it doesn't actually say anything of un, of comprehension in that entire fucking movie.
0: Actually, I I had a hard time with that movie.
1: Well, y- y- you got to watch it a couple of times to really understand what's going on.
0: And it's very slow. It is. Very slow.
1: I'll tell you what though, it's one of the best-looking movies I own on Blu-ray because it was it was all done in miniature as opposed to CGI. CGI looks great. Miniature looks so much better. Mm, yeah, it really yeah, it does. does.
0: Yeah. Well, because it holds up, especially if they remaster it for Blu-ray and stuff, it just looks better over over time. Well,
1: yeah, I mean when like when they remaster, they tend to they tend to go through and clean clean up the original footage in terms of like you removing some of the noise and stuff. And that and, and that's that's nice but but they also I mean just the miniatures themselves I think stand up way better than a lot of a lot of um a lot of CGI. Yeah. I
0: was
1: gonna say I think one one of the ones that's on both of our lists is the Hobbit.
0: Yes. I don't think I even Yeah, I don't I don't think that I included that on my original list, but it's definitely up there. Um I sort of link that in my head with um, all of Tolkien and all of Lewis sort of together. I mean, they're very distinct authors, but I was reading them about the same time and they influenced me in very similar ways.
1: It's Uh, funny because I actually, because I I have both The Hobbit and The Lion that Went to the Wardrobe on my list, and those are both, um, I, I, I have very separate thoughts and introductions to them. Hmm um the hump we actually read in 4th grade in my uh, in the in one of my one of my classes and that was that was really interesting that was that, that was that was my first introduction to fantasy oh wow really
0: that's a good one that's a an excellent introduction
1: yeah well i mean if you're going to if you're going to do it do it right you know and and i didn't i never i didn't see it as that, as hey this is an introduction to fantasy this is just this sure. is a really cool book in a really cool realm that that has been de- developed and then now obviously looking back between obviously with the hobbit and then lord of the rings the the foundations for for so much of modern modern fantasy
0: yeah absolutely you know, i mean shoot he
1: Tolkien bridges that gap between myth and lore and-, 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 and modern fantasy
0: yeah well, and you have so many, I mean, the sort of Shannara books, I would argue, are almost at least the first few chapters of the first book are a direct rip-off, line by line, of the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Tolkien was a giant among fantasy and literary authors. Um, the Hobbit, for me, flows so smoothly, and it's a tale, you know, it's a story, it sounds like something that a bard might sing around a campfire or something like that.
1: Well, it, it... Lord of the Rings is an epic. Yeah. Right. This you know, this is, this is, it's this huge, literally world spanning. It's all of middle earth spanning, you know, just, just epic story. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, this is really, this is, this is Bilbo's tale. This is, this is, it's, it's one little portion of Bilbo's life and it, it just focuses on him. Yeah. I mean, it's a crazy adventure, but then Bilbo goes home.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and in my head, The Hobbit. I was reading about the same. Well, no, I was reading The Hobbit when I was about eight or nine, about the same time as you. But I started reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when I was six, um, and I have read it at this point over thirty-five times. I wow! Think. Um, I thought
1: I thought I was heavy with Starship Troopers at like ten.
0: I, well, I, I read it a whole I mean, bunch of times. The line
1: the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a little bit lighter than that. But. It is
0: lighter. And I was rereading it a lot when I was little. So I think I had read it 19 times between the time I was 6 and the time I was 10. And then since then, oh, I've read go. it a few times. Um, and that, for me, introduced the idea, which, of course, I didn't have a name for, of breaking the fourth wall. Because Lewis would directly address his audience from time to time. And... As a six or seven or eight year old, that made me feel very warm and fuzzy, and and a direct part of the story, um, especially because it was a story I loved. It wasn't just any story. This was this was very influential. I mean, the image that Lewis evokes is as strong in my mind, I think, as it was in his. I mean, he he has described his writing process for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a series of images that he sort of carried throughout his life. Um, The fawn standing under the lamppost with the packages, the beaver and the beaver's house, the stone, the the courtyard of the White Witch full of stone creatures. And then he says, and then a lion came bounding into the middle of it and pulled the whole thing together. And those images, I, I wish I could write like that. But he has he has drawn these images in in the imagination of his readers, at least in my imagination, as powerfully as they must have been in his. And for me, it was I mean, it was just as real as everything in my own life. I mean, I was young, so my frame of reference for the world was very small, and then this stretched it so much more. Um, and that was the first series that I read that expected me to be young and and inexperienced but smart enough to follow the author and I loved it I loved it I ate it it up and I would say that it's got to be the most influential series I've ever read only because it expected something of me and I took that to every other book that I read after that I loved it it was great
1: yeah and and I would say and I, and I may have read this before The Hobbit. I can't remember. And I, I want to say like I just randomly came across this in, in in a bookcase my parents had, like I didn't I had no. No context for the book, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And this is the first book I've ever read. Uh, there have been a couple since, that I read in one sitting. I did not put this book down. The Hobbit. No, The the Wardrobe. Which, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's showing show hundred and fifty pages, maybe, yeah, yeah, so I mean was, but I mean like it's I a... was up ha- at you know third or fourth grade or whatever I was up half the night reading it, like I was up till three or four in the morning because I couldn't stop reading it,
0: yeah, that's fantastic
1: yeah, and and, and there have been a few books that, that I have done that with since, but I mean that there's not many
0: i mean it's it. I don't know it's for a man who never had children and who didn't get married until he was in the twilight of his life and to a woman that he loved but was not in love with um, at least at the time. He has a remarkable ability and he talks about in some of his biographies um, they reference letters and things that he's written to people and he talks about um, retaining a sense of wonder that kind of thing and I mean he did. I don't think that there's a modern author that writes as simply and as directly as he did. And he takes it to his adult series as well, which I'll get to because they were almost as influential on me as a young adult as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was it, on me as a child. But yeah.
1: So the next one on my list um, was uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And. Where Heinlein is one of my favorite authors. Stressager Str- is one of my fa- is one of my fa- is probably my favorite book. Hunter S. Thompson is actually probably my favorite author. As bizarre as that sounds. <laughs> um rarely do I agree with him in any way, shape, or form politically. Um I I like to think of myself as a moderate. Thompson is a very, very far left liberal. hmm But his political insight is uncanny. It looks at America and it looks at the American dream with such a a unique lens. It's 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 difficult not to at least attempt to put yourself where he is and look through it and understand what he's trying to get at. I don't think he's always right, but I think I think he truly believes in what he's saying. And I think he he's presenting interesting points that that have to be considered. Mm-hmm. And and just his writing style is fun because it's just it's very stream of conscious, very rambling, ranting kind of a way way of speaking. And I, I, that to me is just fun.
0: Have you read any Kurt Vonnegut? I have not. You may find that it's a similar writing style and that you like it in that kind of way. Um uh, yeah, he it, sort of does that same sort of ADD, stream of consciousness. Whatever comes to mind, he's just going to say it, and he breaks the fourth wall quite a bit.
1: Yeah, um, I, you know, with with the presidential election coming up, I really wish Thompson were still alive, because be I would interesting. love to see what he would have <laughs> to say about about both sides. I, I would wager good money he's a, he would be a Bernie Sanders fan.
0: Probably, yeah. Um, actually, yeah.
1: I mean, he, was a, he was a George McGovern supporter, so. Yeah. But I I would really be curious to see what he what he thought of of this particular group of candidates on both sides.
0: He'd have something scathing to say for sure.
1: Oh, he'd have all kinds of scathing things to say about all kinds of people. I mean, once again, it's a shame, especially for someone as much of a political writer as he is, as he was. That he missed the Tea Party. <laughs> <laughs> I think he died in two thousand and five or two thousand and seven. Oh, like. as,
0: was it that recently?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, it was, a, it was a suicide. But Thompson, he missed. I mean, and if nothing else, the Tea Party would have been total just fodder for him.
0: hmm <laughs> Absolutely. Um. I I read a lot of the classics, and I read a lot of the classics way too early. Um, I loved reading Charles Dickens. I started with Nicholas Nickleby, actually, which is an odd one to start with. I know, but
1: I would say just just liking Dickens in general is kind of odd.
0: Really? Um, I kind of okay. You
1: I know, was uh, hmm? some of it may have to do. Yeah, you, know, you had a very sheltered growing up. I just know a lot of people who really don't. Don't find him that appealing to a modern audience.
0: To a modern audience, yes, but I have, uh, I am careful to read books in the context, or in the frame of thought in which they were written, the the time period that they were written, and and because, as you know, and you are as well, I'm a big student of history. I tend to know what was going on at the time and what influenced these authors in their in their everyday life. What was in the news? What was going on? And that really helps provide some sort of a frame of context for what they're writing and throw some kind of interesting um, commentary on the world in which they lived. And I think that modern audiences, I mean, this is just a personal opinion, but that many people in modern audiences, they read these books and they just don't know the details, the minutiae of what was going on at the time. And then they, they lose so much because...
1: Yeah, but I, I think part—I think that's part—not that particular—but like the level of minutiae involved, I think, is part of the reason why modern audiences don't the same like the same thing. Like, if you look at something like Les Mis, yeah, Les Miserables, I mean, he goes—that's what Dumas, I think so. Yeah, he goes off for like four or five hundred pages on the sewers of Paris because he was getting paid by the word.
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. So,
1: so there's some of that where there's just kind of a, a meandering, rambling... Oh, it's Hugo. I, Victor Hugo. Okay, there you go.
0: That actually makes more sense now that I think well, about but, it.
1: Well, I mean, Dumas is the same thing if you read... Yeah. Um, Count of Monte Cristo is like 1,200 pages, too. Oh,
0: yeah. Even The Three Musketeers was almost impenetrable.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, I've tried to read the unabridged version of that, and it's it's rough.
0: Yeah, it is. <laughs> I read and it once, I, and, and I, guess, I was like, again, never
1: again. Again, <laughs> it. it's, it's, it's that rambling kind of me it's not even rambling it, it it has a point but it's like just taking a leisurely stroll through the through, through the undergrowth through, Jeez. yeah through the undergrowth of the of the, of the story and well yes it adds adds something to the story obviously and again like i said they were getting paid by the word so i just i don't fault the men for doing eternal fucking living yeah exactly um and- but at the same at the same time you know you kind of sit and go and you know some of this minutia just it does it doesn't help any it doesn't like understanding the context is 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 nice but there's a point where it, the context the context drags the story down
0: yes no that's absolutely true and i i wouldn't suggest that everyone go find out everything there is to know about victorian england before they start reading dickens or whatever but knowing kind of what was going on at the time literally the thought process of of the people i think makes it more palatable and i get it that there is there are a lot of problems with the way that dickens saw the world and um but i mean david if you read david copperfield and i was unfortunate enough to read the great illustrated classics version first and the whole thing got spoiled for me which made it almost impossible to get through the actual book because again it was just it rambled so much Um, since I already knew the ending, there was no real reason to read it other than I wanted to say that I had, and it's almost a biography, an autobiography, almost. And that context explains a whole lot about why he created Nicholas Nickleby. Now it has absolutely nothing, no light to shed on the tale of two cities, which is a beautiful book in and of itself. The prose in that book is just surprising well, I mean, man, from man, dickens
1: actually <laughs> Yeah, I mean the man, the man was an elegant writer i mean
0: sometimes when he wanted to be but i mean most of his books were about 150 percent of the size they should have been you know the page count um i also read great expectations when i was about 15 that was just a ridiculous hot mess of a book i never recommend that to anyone i don't know why it's one of his more popular i think because there's an anti-hero in it like pip is not obviously the hero of the story he's not he's the we're using his eyes to see the story, but he really doesn't have all that much of a part to play. Um, And nobody is really a very good person in that book. Um, And so I think modern audiences really like antiheroes. So that one's popular, but I didn't really like it. Um, I, at the same time, I was also reading the Bronte sisters. Weathering Heights really messed me up. Really messed me up. it was, (laughs) a very strange book, and I think I was like 12 when I read it. Way, way, way too young. It was weird. It was very weird. And it was just like in a funk for a couple of days afterward. It was weird. Still a good book. Highly recommend. But yeah. as far as influential, yeah, very much so. I had no idea.
1: So, I've got one that's not on my list that I want to, my old list that I want to I wanna talk about. And, and it's, a, it's influential for an odd reason. Mm-hmm. And I will say that it's it's the song of of ice and fire uh, series. It's influential because it made me put down big fucking books. <laughs> I I I I hack my <laughs> way through through Game of Thrones and Clash and um. Storm clash of, of Kings. Or,
0: no, the second one is um, a feast for crows. I think.
1: No, Storm of Swords.
0: Storm of Swords. That's right. Wait, that's number three. Go. Fuck. <laughs> I don't remember.
1: No, it's Clash of Kings because it's the five the five kings in the. Oh kingdoms. yeah,
0: yeah, Clash of Kings, Storm of Storm Swords, of, Feast for Crows, Feast Crows, Dance of Dragons.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I, so I made my I, I battered my way through the first two. I got like fifty pages into the third one, and I was th- I can't fucking do this anymore.
0: I, I don't blame I you at all. <laughs> I
1: need something short and to the point that I can just enjoy. Um, so that drove me to stuff like Ready Player One and Red Shirts.
0: Mm, yeah, Red Shirts.
1: And um, The Martian and just all that kind of the the short, you know, 300, three to 350 page stories that, that are, are just really enjoyable. Um, And I just, yeah, I couldn't, I can't, like I've got, I've got a couple of other like decent sized books that people are like, oh man, you got to read this. It's really good. And I'm just like, I look at it and it's like, I mm, make my stomach turn. Yeah. I just, yeah. I can't do it. So so this so, you know.
0: Brandon Sanderson is another one of those. Ugh. Ugh. Well, and part
1: of it part of it is 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 Martin was in Martin has been influential to a generation of authors because, you know, I mean, Game of Thrones came. that was what well, came out what ninety six.
0: Yeah, something like that. It was a while ago. It's the late. 90s. Right, but
1: well, my point is that like, you know, it it started in the series started in the mid nineties. So there are a lot of authors who grew up with this with this book so this is that this is how they feel that fantasy should be written
0: yeah well there's also the wheel in time books the Ari salvatore books um mercedes lackey is also another one that writes a lot and these are all 90s authors right um and they all wrote these big honking books oh and then okay so when i first started writing i've never had anything published but i used to really like the idea of writing um I contacted several publishers and said, What are your guidelines for young adult fiction? 200 pages, no more. Between 150 to 200, never any more than 200 double spaced printed pages. And then J.K. Rowling happened. And that just.
1: Yeah, but, yeah, but J.K. Rowling happened in England.
0: Even well, but once her books remember, came me- over remember. here, it kind of busted open that whole thing, and then no, no, after no that I, you have... I,
1: I agree it did, but remember, she had three books written before the first one ever came to you, America.
0: That's true and i'm it... not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that because of that, it changed the way that publishers look at young adult fiction. Aragon massive book for a young adult book. not yeah, as not well, still pretty big for adult fiction, but really big for young adult fiction um so we you in the late 90s and the early 2000s you just had so many authors that were just breaking down these word counts um and publishers that were allowing them to do it and now you have the brandon sanderson's of the world which well i i think that he rambles too much but then i've only ever read um his most recent books um and i've heard that the misborn trilogy is a lot better so i'll try that
1: yeah i've heard that as well um so I don't, did I? Re, I, don't, I, don't, I may have told you. I don't think I've ever mentioned it on a podcast. Uh, my, my my interaction with Harry Potter, the Harry Potter books. No. Yeah. So the first the first Harry Potter book came out in 1997. I was in England in 1999. And like the the books, I guess, have been released in 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 the U.S. I guess, well, I'm looking at. Well, I was looking at Wikipedia here. So, I guess they were, they were released in 98, but towards the end of 98. So they had they didn't really take off. Um and I was looking at and we'd gone to a bookstore in England. And I I distinctly remember this this older older gentleman talking to my mother cuz she was looking for just for books for school cuz both my parents are teachers. And um he was telling us about this this you know, this book series, this couple of books about harry potter and they explained it to us whatever and i just remember like didn't end up getting into it or getting any of the books because my parents just kind of didn't like it like mm-hmm. like the idea of it yeah but i just remember like i remember hearing about this and then like five years later hearing about like it just blowing up and i was like what the hell <laughs> I heard about this in England like years ago. where the where where did it go and where did it go and where did it come come back from? Holy fuck.
0: Yeah. I remember my parents didn't really like the idea of it either. And I always found that a little odd because at the time I was reading Patricia C. Reed, which she wrote The Dragons of Perth, if I recall correct. No, The Dragons of Pern is Anne McCaffrey. I'm thinking of um Reed also wrote about dragons. I can't remember the name of her books. Um I was reading the Narnia books. I was reading Tolkien. I was re- I was reading so many fantasy books and my mom was like, "No, I draw the line at Harry Potter." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." I mean, yeah, I don't. Whatever. I read them a lot later and to be honest, they're okay. I don't know. But then again, I was a little older than the audience they were designed for. And I had already read so much fantasy. I mean, I think those books got a lot of people into fantasy. And if you've never read them before, you think they're very original. Um, whereas I thought they weren't, really. Another one that, speaking of books that start out, or authors that start out with very skinny books and then go to very hefty books, um, C.S. Lewis did that with the Out of the Silent Planet, or um, I think it's also called like the Space Trilogy or something like that. But originally the trilogy was named after the first book, which is Out of the Silent Planet. And then it's Perelandra, and then That Hideous Strength. And the first two, I, I believe I started with Paralandra that I sort of just picked up because I was 13 and I loved Lewis and I had read the Chronicles of Narnia to the point of not really wanting to read them for a while. And it's Paralandra is another book that I, this is the story of my life, that I read too early and didn't fully grasp. But the images that he evoked are so stunningly gorgeous that I wanted to read the rest of the books. So I read Out of the Silent Planet, which gives some backstory on Ransom, who's the main character, and some other people. And that was pretty good. And then I sort of took a break for about a year, and I read, and then I read That Hideous Strength. And That Hideous Strength is sort of the culmination, um, and it's, the book that I read was about twice as big as the other two books put together. And. Wow. The story had sort of been coasting along, like if you were looking at it a graph, it was sort of coasting around, you know, on the x axis or on the y axis, sorry, about zero or one. And then all of a sudden, at the third book, it jumps up to 150. And you're going, Whoa, what? I didn't even realize the threads of this story had been laid already. And then all of a sudden, it just takes off. And it's a really good book for adults, but. In the manner of C.S. Lewis writing for adult audiences, it's incredibly layered and there's a lot of very ugly imagery. And this, again, is a man who evokes very strong pictures. So when he decides to use that force for evil, it can be really traumatizing, especially to somebody who's not really supposed to be reading that book yet. Uh, But I read that and I also read Till We Have Faces in the same year. Until We Have Faces is a retelling of the story of Cupid and Psyche. Okay, and is insanely beautiful. It's it's written from the from the point of view of Psyche after she's been cast out and is wandering the world. Um, or it, it's actually not Psyche. It's it's Psyche's sister who's telling the story, but it's it's about Psyche and how she's wandering the world and what's happened to all the major players in that story after um, Cupid is no longer with his his woman. So um, the very end of the story, and again, um, much like the other the other trilogy, the end of the story suddenly wraps up a bunch of loose threads that you didn't realize were loose and is just absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the most satisfying. You said one time that Ready Player One had one of the most satisfying endings that you've ever read. Yes. I would argue absolutely. that Till We Have Faces is is very similar in satisfaction. Not written the same way, not even close. So if you liked Ready Player One, you may or may not like Till We Have Faces, but an incredibly satisfying ending.
1: Okay. Um, probably the last one on my list that I want to talk about is uh and it's actually one that you currently have is Marvel the Untold Story. Mhm. And I want to say I heard about it first on iFanboy. Um, I was a pretty devout iFanboy listener uh, at the time. Actually, it's funny. I actually, I've I've not I've within the last week and a half or so, I've gone back and started listening to iFanboy, and and the lineup has changed again. Oh. Except it's now it's changed back to the people it used to be. Oh, And nice. I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like, did I just did I go back in time two years? <laughs> yeah. So I'm pretty sure they were the one first ones I heard it, heard about it from, and then I. Couple weeks later, I went to New York Comic Con and actually picked it up from the author. Nice. And like, I know it's a comic, a book about comic book history, like, but it reads, it reads like fiction. In part because you can't believe that 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 this level of ridiculousness is going on behind the scenes, but also just it's it's very well written. Um, that that was one I had a hard time putting down at. at at times too, it helped that I was reading it mostly over a Christmas vacation. Yeah, like uh, my my job, um, we shut down for a few days for like a week and a half or so right around Christmas, just because otherwise we'll never get anything done. Mm-hmm. So we just we we just we shut down for a week and a half or so. Well, that makes um, it
0: really nice when you're trying to get through books or a show or whatever.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure that was one of the years that, like the way it, the way it fell out was like, I had like I had to take like four four or five days of leave to like cover myself, and then if I took like an extra like three or four days, I got like three weeks off.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I got like, best.
1: or I got like I got like two full weeks plus you know three weekends worth, so I got you know I got a ton of time off. So I remember just, like, I was you know I'd be sitting in bed till three or four in the morning reading that uh but that was kind of one of the one of the things that really drove me to to look into comic book history there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes that that's interesting uh so what are the other you know that, and that's that's marvel and that really covers the entirety entire history of marvel from you know when it was timely comics back in the 30s all the way up until i think i mean, think i think it came out in 2000 i think i think it covers up to like 2010 2012 somewhere in that range so you know it covers a lot of that stuff, and there's so much else out there. you know that's a lot of information. There's a lot, so there's a lot that that, that didn't make the book, obviously, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of other stories out there, you know, other comic book history, you know, that 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 isn't Marvel that's worth that's worth looking into. So that really drove me to to start looking into the history of of comic books more.
0: And those are some of the favorite, my favorite blog posts that you've written are the ones about Marvel or just comic history in general.
1: Well, like I said, I mean, some of the things that go on behind the scenes were ridiculous.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up.
1: No, I mean.
0: Like the one guy, the the, uh, post that you wrote, the man that almost killed comics, that still to this day cracks me up because it's just. What?
1: Well, yeah, the the absurdity of Wortham's arguments is is pretty spectacular. Um, and, you know, I've, it's it's funny if you ever if if anyone get gets a chance to go to a a panel that um, uh, I think his name is Charles Bronstein. He's the the head of the the Comic Legal Defense Fund. He's done a couple of them, like um, histories of censorship and comics and stuff like that. Uh huh. And he. So for, for for someone who runs something like the comic book legal defense fund, he's got a very nuanced view of Wortham, because in in you know Wortham's work on comics, you know was I think dastardly is 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 a good phrase to use. Mm-hmm. But then you also, if you look at at some of his other work, um, Wortham's research was actually w- one of the the more important pieces of evidence. Given during Brown versus Board of Education,
0: oh, did not. That, uh, I, oh, I think you referenced that briefly in your yeah. post. Yeah,
1: yeah. That that Wortham's research demonstrated that racial segregation was detrimental to student to, to to children and to students. Wow, right. Yeah. So, I mean, when you when you look at at, I mean, you've got the evil evils of 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 seduction of the innocent.
0: Hmm.
1: But you've got to balance that with with the good work he did in ending horrible practices of segregation.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, so it's you know, if it weren't for seduction of the innocent, we would look at Wortham as a hero. As yeah. Yeah. Well if, and if it's, it's certainly if even without a hero, certainly at least someone who whose work and 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 what is worth is worthy of, of praise and admiration.
0: Well I mean and I think it's a valuable point to make that we're all human like we all have these weird things that we do that probably history won't remember correctly and then we just have to hope that our good deeds outweigh our bad in the end
1: yeah At well, and, and i mean and and being a person of science that i am um a engineer by trade and whatnot you know it also reinforces to me the proper use of the scientific method
0: yes exactly
1: because part of the reason Wortham's research was such junk on in seduction of the innocent was that he didn't follow proper scientific method. He, he didn't have control groups. He didn't, he, he, he mistook a uh, causal relationship. Right. As opposed to.
0: Correlative. Yeah. Um, I was, I absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And we have to kind of, it's hard to remember that we need to even take studies nowadays with a little bit of a grain of salt until we see. um, And that's the nice thing is that in most journals they publish.
1: Well, honestly you say that, but at the same time, I mean, look at the internet and look at some of the, the ridiculousness, like the anti-vaccine. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's the same kind of crap
0: based on one single study that was poorly put together um yeah absolutely it, it's fun
1: it's funny i've actually seen like i've actually seen websites that 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 try and defend the guy who wrote that and and how there's there's this smear campaign out to destroy him and i'm like no no he it was shitty science
0: and there are literally dozens dozens it's not dozens
1: it's hundreds of some
0: other some, experiments some of, that... some of
1: them in, some of them including up you know upwards of hundreds of thousands of children where his yeah. his one study had like Fifteen kids or some something dumb like that. Ridiculous. Yeah. It just...
0: um, okay. Anyway,
1: so yeah, without without getting uh, getting sidetracked <laughs> on that on that particular level of fucking dumb.
0: Yeah, I would say that one um, probably the last book that I want to talk about um, that is actually not on my list. I, I briefly talked about um, the colored fairy books by Andrew Lang, and how they opened my mind to the world because they're. They're about fairy tales, but they're they're fairy tales and folk tales from around the world, um, and a lot of the ones that I liked best were not Eurocentric. They were about Polynesian island uh, folk tales, things, some folk tales from Africa, some from India, and that kind of opened my mind to the world that it was a little bit bigger than you know my little neighborhood. But another book that did that for me that has nothing to do with fantasy or science fiction was *Kantiki*, which I read when I was in my teens. And I've always been terrified of the ocean. Um, I've seen plenty of horror movies wherein large creatures from below the depths. Um, da, giant, da, Yeah, well, da, that's the most famous. Um, da, 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 da. But the, the ones that really freak me out are the ones where like giant worms come up from the Marianas Trench and eat people on a cruise ship or whatever. Um, And it's it's just terrifying to me that, you know, (laughs) there's all. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Um,
1: I can keep going if you want.
0: (laughs) That's okay. I'm fine. There's such a depth that you just you can't see and anything can be down there. I mean, we've mapped 10% of the ocean floor at this point. We don't know what's down there.
1: Um, It's probably more more than that at this point. I I feel like that's been a number that we've been throwing around for like the last 15 years.
0: Okay, so it might be more, but, but it probably yeah. isn't much more. It's certainly not 100% at this point. No, no, no. Um, but Kontiki. And we haven't even
1: found Atlantis yet.
0: And it's obviously there somewhere. Obviously. <laughs> um, but Kontiki inspired us. Uh, that's not to say I'm not t- still terrified of the ocean, but Kontiki inspired this sense of awe and mystery and wonder about the depths there's this one really famous scene that impressed me as much as it impressed anyone in which there uh, the premise of contigi if i'm sure as i'm sure you know is that um, a scientist had a hypothesis that the polynesian islands had been settled by um explorers from africa who had built balsa wood or might have been south america i think it was africa though that had built because the the reigning theory that they was that they had just come from a much closer place and he thought that the gulf stream and other currents would have taken a balsa wood raft all the way from the coast of africa to the polynesian islands and that's where the polynesians came from that they had a completely different heritage than anyone else had thought and um so he set out to prove it by building a balsa wood raft and getting some of his closest friends to take a ride with him for a very long time
1: Yeah, it sounds like a bad plan.
0: It was a ridiculous plan. I don't like sitting
1: in the car with my friends for like more than a couple of hours.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, but it worked. Anyway, spoilers. Sorry, guys. Um, If you haven't read this book at this point, I don't know what to tell you. Um, Anyway, so one of the most amazing scenes is when they're on the raft. It's the middle of the night. And they look down and there's this glowing light in the ocean below them it's an alien probably and then it starts circling the raft down below hunt maybe a hundred feet below they can't even totally tell totally an alien and then it's joined by six other ones so there's seven of these glowing lights seven aliens seven, aliens, seven glowing <laughs> aliens <laughs> circling below the raft and then as the sun comes up they disappear and it just
1: vampiric aliens
0: well but they didn't need any they didn't try to drink anybody's blood
1: but they disappeared because they're afraid of the sun
0: oh well
1: look i'm being ridiculous here okay (laughs) just just, just maybe the aliens just
0: turned off their porch lights i don't know (laughs) um (laughs) but just that moment uh, um and and i mean the hypothesis is these days that it might have been whale sharks with some kind of a phosphorescent fungi algae thing attached to them nobody knows but well, these guys
1: were fucking delusional
0: well i mean they'd been on a balsa wood rafts and, right that's my you know, point probably <laughs> i mean they could have been They're on just seeing shit at this point um but it was it was just really cool and uh, they described of course a lot of um things that they'd actually been able to observe during the day they were followed by pods of porpoises and um they had a, a really sad story about a duck they, kept, they brought a duck along on the raft. I don't even know why they brought this duck. I don't remember the motivation at this point. And eventually one day the duck just sort of flapped off the edge and hopped in the ocean and swam away. Um, and they didn't realize that, like, the duck didn't realize that they weren't on a small pond. And they never saw the duck again. So that was very sad. Um, but, yeah. And they ended up actually making it all the way. But... Really, really good book. I would recommend reading it. I mean, obviously, a lot of the science and stuff is is been debunked, or we know more about the species that they describe and stuff. This happened a long time ago, Um, but really good book, Um, and and one that really influenced my my worldview at the time. So yeah,
1: interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think we I think we we've covered pretty much everything we're looking to to talk about. Um. So we've talked a lot about books today, but uh, what else, Trace, have you been in, have been into lately?
0: Well, I just finished the Bowery Boys, the comic book that you had been talking about, um, and really, really enjoyed that. It's a historical graphic novel, and um, I found that to be very interesting. I just started a show called Dark Matter, um, which is I have
1: seen that on Netflix.
0: I just saw the first well, no, the first two episodes. I think maybe three. When you're binging, it's hard to know the beginning and ending of something. Um, Very I think I think it's e- we're either on. I mean, I think I'm on episode two. I think I finished episode two, um, and it feels a lot like Firefly. Just saying, um, it. There's a couple of actors that had been on Continuum, which, you know, I enjoyed that show a lot and kind of sad that it got canceled after season three and they didn't give us any explanation for what happened because it got canceled first. Um, so a couple of those actors are on there. Um, it's quite interesting so far. It's about a, a ship, um, a bunch of people, six people that wake up on a ship with no memory of who they are. They're in space. They're just sort of floating. Um, looks like they've been hit by a meteorite and they don't know what's going on. And then they're trying to fit together the clues There's an Android robot on there. She's interesting. Um, Yeah. That's about all I know at this point because it's still pretty early on. Seems pretty cool. There's only one season. It'll be easy to binge and see how that goes. Um, I also watched almost two full seasons of Breaking Bad and abandoned it because they're just awful people. And I got tired of watching them be awful to each other. (laughs) So (laughs) all done. (laughs) Um, I think that's... I think that's about it for now. Yep.
1: Let's see. Um what have I been into? Oh, I've been watching
0: uh, Kurt play Skyrim.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um I'm actually now finally caught up on Grayson.
0: Nice. Ooh, good. Um
1: I've kind of binge reading that. That's been very that's been nice. Um I'm Trying to think what else there is.
0: Well, you did b- read, read Bowery Boys, if we haven't talked about I'd, that already.
1: I did read Bowery Boys. Um, I got started reading um, some Don Rosa, um, uh, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics.
0: Oh, yeah. You got that at um, Baltimore, right?
1: Well, I get, yeah. I got the, the big the big Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck artist edition, which is gorgeous. I haven't sat down and read that yet because I don't have the table space to sit down and read it properly at the moment. But I've I've also I've, I've I also picked up three volumes. There was the Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck went did so well that they have they they started a second series that was Donald Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck. Nice, um, yeah. And so I, I picked up a uh, three three hard covers of those. And you know, the Donald Duck ones are fun because they just it's Donald Duck being ridiculous. You know he's got his temper he's got his temper so he starts fights and. You know, he just he can't keep mo- he can't hold on the money, so it's just, it's just <laughs> a lot of like slapsticky kind of humor. That's um, fun, it, but then the Scrooge McDuck ones are are like the Donald Duck ones are kind of shorts, and then and then the, the Scrooge ones are are much longer, and they're really enjoyable. You know, they're obviously they're obviously aimed at kids, but there's a lot of really good, um, just, just really strong storytelling in them.
0: Wasn't weren't there a couple of squirrels that showed up occasionally in the Scrooge comics?
1: Squirrels?
0: They were squirrels, and they would they would chase things, and they were just sort of like comic relief from time to time. No, no. Okay, I'm thinking of something else. I'm gonna have to figure out what that memory was from.
1: I mean, there's Chip and Dale, who are chipmunks, and they're, yeah. they're not in, they're not in Scrooge Mac, they're not, not the, the Scrooge McDuck stuff. They're another Disney thing, but they're not.
0: Okay, I thought that they had some crossover stuff, and then I mean Scrooge also has the nephews, right? Huey, Louie, Dewey, and
1: yeah, Huey, Louie, and Dewey.
0: Oh, it's just the three. Okay, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and then he has a niece, Webby.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about her.
1: Um, yeah, and so so, so like the so like I don't know if you ever, people remember the DuckTales cartoon, it's a lot of the same characters. Um, there's Gyro, the really crappy inventor. <laughs> um I remember him. the beagle boys um magic of dispel gold the other scottish the other rich scottish duck
0: i don't remember him at all
1: he wasn't in a whole lot of them but yeah
0: nice that sounds fun so, yeah it's just it,
1: it, it's well, it, it's great art I like, it's just wonderful art and it's also really just good fun storytelling all right, folks, if you like what we do, make sure you head on over to com and check out our blog posts and our podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes and Stitcher. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Once again, I'm Andrew. And I'm Tracy. And you've been listening to Therefore I Geek.